You're listening to TIP. Hey, everyone. Welcome to this week's episode of the Bitcoin Fundamentals Podcast. On today's show, I have a titan in the Bitcoin space with Obi Nwosu. Obi is one of the leading experts and builders on the custody protocol called Fediment. And during our discussion, we cover what the protocol is, why it's so exciting and important for future growth and building, how Obi became a nonprofit board member on B-Trust with Jay-Z and Jack Dorsey, the lessons he learned from founding, owning, operating, and selling a large exchange, among many other fascinating topics. This isn't one you'll want to miss, so get ready for my chat with Obi Nwosu. You're listening to Bitcoin Fundamentals by The Investors Podcast Network. Now for your host, Preston Pish. Hey, everyone. Welcome to the show. Like I said in the introduction, I'm here with Obi, and I'm really excited to do this conversation. It took a little bit of preparation on my part to get myself smart enough to have this conversation with you. So I'm really excited to have you on the show. Okay. Well, I needed to probably do the same level of preparation, and I, I haven't <laughs> for my sins. So you're probably going to outsmart me on 30 minutes. No, no, sir. Hey, so tell us, tell us your Bitcoin story, because you've been in this space for a very long time, very, very long time. How did you find this? How did you find Bitcoin originally? Originally, well, by background, uh, a geek. I studied computer science and cognitive science in um, University College London. And so I was trying to make our new robot overlords. And it seems like they've been doing fine without me. And then I went into the tech industry in the European space. I was involved with massively multiplayer role-playing games, 30 million users, all this sort of stuff. Wow. Yeah. And um, as a background, I was always interested in the, just the disparities in the world. You know, my family was from Nigeria. I could see the difference between the global South and the global and the Western world. And I was really into te- te- technology. So when some friends of mine heard about Bitcoin in 2011, they just thought this is going to be right up OB Street. And they, and they informed me about it. And, and lo and behold, I found it very interesting. I looked at it intensely for about three months, but I was running my own business at the time. So other than buying a very small amount, I, I didn't, I found the technology very interesting, but I didn't sort of dive in because uh, I was focused on life. And then two years later, well, the price crashed actually. From my perspective, I think it went from $100 down to like $20. And I thought, okay, the technology is great, but I have concerns on the long-term viability. So I focused on my business. Two years later, a company I had angel invested in, the founder approached me again. The company didn't succeed, but I thought the founders were, were really um, the clever guys. And they said, look, while running this other business, we came across, because it was a sort of voucher token reward system, they came across this thing called Bitcoin. And I thought, well, that's still around. I checked it again, 2013. And lo and behold, it was now worth a few hundred. And so I thought, okay, this is great technology. The mission is great, making you know, meritocratic money, is the way I would put it. And it had staying power. And there was a clear problem that the exchanges around at the time were, Mount Gox was in the middle of failing and they weren't trusted. So there's a simple idea of making a trusted exchange 
in the UK where we focus came about. And so I decided to, with my co-founders, co-found CoinFloor, which was the UK's, at that time, a young exchange, but eight years later when we sold it, was the longest running Bitcoin-only exchange in the UK. And yeah, that was the story. I started off as a CTO. Within nine months, I was the CTO and CEO of um, um, CoinFloor. And we had multiple ups and downs, but ultimately more ups than downs. And we and I sold it at the end of last year. So that was my, my That's unreal. This is unreal. <laughs> and I can't no, be- no, I can't believe your regulatory like trying to do this back when it had never been done. I mean, like you said, it was Mount Gox over in Japan, and that was basically like it, and it was very boutique. And you're probably looking at trying to do this in the UK. I just couldn't imagine the regulatory burden that you were dealing it, with. I, I I've had I've been in the Bitcoin space for eight years, and that's about 80 years of regulatory <laughs> When we started, we, we applied. In fact, before we started, we applied to the FSA at the time. Now it's the FCA. And I believe FSA was the Financial Standards Authority. I can't even remember. It changed name. Now it's the Financial Conduct Authority. And we said, look, we're staying on this company. We want to be regulated. And here's what we're doing. And they came back very politely saying, thank you very much. But uh, what we believe you're doing is, an, is not a regulated activity. So you go ahead and do it. So we're not going to regulate you. And so with that letter, we started. But that's, that was where we began. But we still wanted to be incredibly transparent. There was a uh, Bitcoin core engineer who suggested this idea called provable solvency or proof of, proof of reserves. And we decided to implement that. I think a number of exchanges, Kraken, Coinbase, blockchain.info at the time, now it's blockchain.com, BTC China, um, now it's defunct. And I think this stamp as well, they all also made these public statements that they would also implement proof of reserves. Unfortunately, we're the only ones who actually did it. I think Kraken did one and stopped. All of them. Um, remove the the public statements off their websites after six months. But you can go back in the Wayback Web Machine and find the original promise to do this. You can, I'll leave it for the readers or the listeners to do, determine why they decided not to do proof of reserves. Um, but we did it every month for eight years. And this is something, in fact, Nick Carter talked about continuously. And yeah, many other things. We, in the Bitcoin Bitcoin Cash Wars, we, we um, were one of the few exchanges to be not a fans of this sort of Segwit2x sort of compromise. We said, look, whatever yeah. the users try to be Bitcoin, I was Bitcoin. We educated everyone ranging from the intelligence aid, um, services to the police to politicians. I, we gave, I gave evidence in front of the, um, BBC, um, the UK Parliament. Treasury Select Committee, which is a bit like the Senate committee hearings. We did everything to try and educate people and educate the regulators. We started at a position when it took us talking to nearly 200 banks across Europe to get a bank account at that time. Now, for this new project we're working on, I've talked to four banks and four banks listen to me and are interested in opening bank accounts. It's still tough. You still have to fill in 70-page forms. Um, But... (laughs) It's much better than when I had to travel to Estonia to get become an Estonian e-citizen just to get a bank account or travel to Poland or travel around 
around Europe. So uh, I've seen a lot when it comes to regulation. So your impetus for starting the exchange and doing this was custody related, correct? Uh, yes. I, I, well, the impetus was to solve the problem of helping people go from fiat to Bitcoin. We saw ourselves as this Robin Hood-like, or I saw myself as Robin Hood-like character, sort of rescuing people from this world of this regulated inflationary money and, and allowing them to move over to this regulation-free, inflation-free money. And as part of that, you had to provide them a custody solution that was safe and reliable, etc. And so we decided that we wanted to be as transparent as possible because we're holding people's money on their behalf. And also to bring back trust, especially in the wake of Mount Gox, we felt that we would go down this road to regulation. And that was the way to do it because... At the end of the day, we're a third party. We are effectively a stranger to our customer. And we're incentivized to earn money. And you're asking us to look after your money. So there is a perverse incentive there, where in most cases, if you're incentivized to make money, that leads to competition, innovation, and so on. Because to earn money, you have to provide an incredibly, the most efficient way to earn money is to provide an incredibly good service to your customers. But in the case where you're custodying money, then the most efficient way to earn money can be just to take the money. And um, especially some entrepreneurs who, who walk the line might start, as we've seen recently, start doing things like gambling with your money, or they might abscond with your money, or, or it might just disappear, etc. And so we felt that the way to, to bring that trust back is to, to, to go for regulation. Little did I know that actually that was led you from one problem into another. But I discovered that over the next eight years. So I'm assuming you had no experience with exchanges before going into this. And you hear these people who build something really large and substantial, like what you did with CoinFloor. And they'll jokingly say, if I only knew what I know now, I would have never taken the first step because it was, it was like climbing Mount Everest or some type of like massive, massive undertaking that you just don't know. So like, your, uh, your lack of knowledge or understanding of how hard the problem is would have prevented you from, from starting. Do you have a little bit of that sense when you look back at those eight years of, of running such a... I, I mean, I, I mean I, I've, had that, I've had ups and downs as anybody has in a startup for eight years. And there were many, many, many times that I wished I'd had a start the business. <laughs> I, it was eight years, but I probably lost 20 years of my life expectancy. <laughs> I've had some of the worst health days in my life, some of the most stressful periods. Now that I've gone through it, and because of what I've learned from it, I'm grateful for it because it's, it's prepared me for what, what I'm doing now, which I, I cannot feel, I cannot describe how happy and excited and passionate I am about what I'm doing now. And if I didn't have those skills applied to this, then it, it wouldn't have been the same thing. But um, yeah, I, I didn't have any experience of running an exchange at the time. We were very naive. Eight years is a long time now. So I've got not only experience running exchange, but running a Bitcoin exchange in and, and a regulated Bitcoin exchange. We were the first exchange to be regulated in Gibraltar, one of the first jurisdictions to provide regulation in Europe. We were one of the earliest in, in Europe and, and many different things. And 
in fact, actually not coming from the traditional markets was a boon for us because a lot of people who run exchanges come from the market where they were traders themselves. And there's always, we found with certain customers, there's always a slight concern when the person running the exchange has the same mindset as the traders. Um, there's always a worry, are they trading against you? Are they doing all these different things? Whereas with us, my background was that of a technologist. Yeah. And so I just wanted to make the system work as well as possible. And I'm not a good trader. So we had no interest in doing anything other than making sure the systems worked incredibly reliably. We were never hacked. We never had these issues which seemed to plague exchanges orders of magnitude larger than us. We were, we were a medium-sized exchange. We were a good-sized exchange, but exchanges that were much larger than us when there were these massive moves in the market and people really needed to trade, they all seemed to just go down. I know, you know? I know exactly um, which, which exchange you're talking about. <laughs> I won't name names, but they would always seem to go down. But we would keep on ticking, and people liked that. Even they, they knew that we just made sure we kept people happy. We made sure we were reliable. We were very conservative. So philosophically, we were always aligned to the ideals of Bitcoin. So it was like, it was, um, you know, TikTok next block. And it was also the same for our exchange. And that's, I think, because we were first and foremost engineers and second commercially minded traders. In fact, we were zero in that, in that regard. Yeah. I love that. I love that, that background. And and it, which led to the success of the performance, which is really what you're trying to get at with the customer providing uh, the customer a service. Now, when you're looking back at that experience, if you were going to explain to your kids, all right, these are the two big things I learned from those eight years that felt like 80 years. How would you summarize your two big takeaways of what that was all about? Ooh, uh, I have immediate thoughts to mind, but. <laughs> Um, no, let me just not. Uh, no, I think there's two things. One, you have to realize that you need to avoid regulation <laughs> if you can, even though we got it. I, I think that the innovation for Bitcoin is to be able to be regulation proof. So I'm using all that learnings to build systems which are just mm. don't need to be in. If you really want to do something of global impact, for what we're doing, you want to be, you want to build systems that are, are cognizant of how the world works, but don't wait for the world to catch up for you because hmm. that just don't. So that's the first learning. And the second is to be very, very, very careful of who you partner with and who you, you know, um, whether it's partner, partnering organizations or people within your organization or so on and so forth. So that would be the second thing, I think, or who invests in you, all of this sort of stuff. That um, if, if I look back, although everybody had their own perspective and I don't wish anybody any ill will, I do think that there was a lot of differences of perspective in all those regards in terms of the direction of the organization. And that caused us a lot of challenges. I was very focused on going a Bitcoin only road. Some people came around to that, but it took several years. Some people never came around to that. And then they, they it led us to just like a fork in Bitcoin. They led to a fork in CoinFloor, mm-hmm. where we eventually split ways and recreated, recreated the world's first physical dividend futures exchange, Bitcoin futures exchange. 
but that was eventually, there was a schism and that was sold off. We retained an, a, a small equity stake, which we eventually sold last year, but that became CoinFlex, which you now see in the news. And they went their own way, which was very much a Bitcoin Cash, multi-crypto, 200x leverage approach. And we, were, we went to the Bitcoin-only spot, focus for retail, dollar cost averaging approach, which was closer to my philosophical view. And we were, but these things by themselves, and if you focus on them, are different business models. And it doesn't really matter what you think of each one. There, are, there is a way where they can flourish. But when you have two philosophies and where to go with a business, and they're so different, you know, um, you end up in this sort of no man's land. Though, in the end, it was actually a really good decision for us to split in two, and everybody could then go the direction that they wanted to go in, and they could have the future that they were destined to have. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. Don't just ride the index, seek to outperform it with Fidelity Active ETFs. Learn more at fidelity.com slash active ETFs. Before investing in any exchange-traded fund, you should consider its investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Contact Fidelity for a prospectus, an offering circular, or if available, a summary prospectus containing this information. Read it carefully. While active ETFs offer the potential to outperform an index, these products may more significantly trail an index as compared with passive ETFs. Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC, member NYSE, SIPC. Our friends at Coriant provide wealth management services centered around you. Coriant's goal is to exceed your expectations and simplify your life. Coriant has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. They are one of the largest integrated fee-only U.S. registered investment advisors, and Coriant has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. They have extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of planning, investing, lending, and money management disciplines. The teams at Coriant put the collective power of their expertise into building you the custom wealth, investment, and family office solutions that can help you reach your holistic financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, speak with an advisor today at Coriant.com. That's spelled C-O-R-I-E-N-T dot com. That's Corient dot com. When Rain Wilson had a great idea, he turned to AT&T Business. They assured him no matter how out there his idea may be, they had his back. So he came up with this, a talking pillow designed to put you to sleep, backed by a reliable network in the only network with built-in security controls. And thus, Sleep With Rain was a hit. Take your business to the next level at business.att.com. That's business.att.com. All right, back to the show. Fascinating. I love those two points. Avoid regulation if you can, and be careful with who you partner with. And I think with the three arrows capital situation, boy, that last point really hits home for a lot of people these days of who they're partnering with or who they're working with. And such a such a salient point across all time. When people are, this is a, a I think a question that I get a lot when I'm just talking to anybody about Bitcoin in particular. People are always asking which exchange to use. Do you have any tips for people as they're looking at uh, selecting an exchange? What are like some rule of thumbs or something that's really simple for them to do a little bit of an analysis on who to select? 
as they're trusting, because what we're about to talk about kind of gets into the future of trust and custody and all that kind of stuff. But for people today, right now, as they're looking at exchanges that they can trust, what are some things without naming names that you would look at or things that make, should make your eyebrows go up when you see it as a person who has built an exchange? So um, I think, I guess you've start off deciding what is your reason for wanting to use an exchange. Are you someone who wants to speculate, is comfortable with the risk of speculating, effectively somewhere between the spectrum of trader to gambler? You know, that's, that's, that's the spectrum. Um, some people consider them all the same thing. Some people consider them different. But if that's where your mindset is, you should be open and truth to yourself. In which case, everything is about risk. And you should be focused on who has the most features, um, who has the most liquidity, and just accept that there's a risk that they could blow up as a business. But that's just one more risk you're taking along with the trading risk. If you are someone who is interested in using this as a custodian for holding your value in the long run, uh, you are not you're, you see this as a savings technology as opposed to a speculation technology, then you should have a very different set of criteria. It isn't about who's the biggest name. It's about who has a consistent commitment to focus on social capital over financial capital i.e. it's more important for them to maintain honor and dignity um, and a good reputation. And their actions have shown that over the short-term money. They want to make money, of course, because they have to be to be profitable, but it, they want to make sure that they maintain, maintain their, their, um, their own social credibility and that's, that's a high value for them. And so if that's... The first thing you do now, how do you do that? Well, you look for signs and symbols. So one, how they speak, what they talk about, what they prioritize. Do they have a clear set of criteria for what they list? And is their criteria um, based on um, the safety of their users? Or is the criteria based on how much money they can make from their users? If it's the prime first, then this is probably the biggest indicator. If it's the first then that's a good sign. If it's the second, that is a sign that they're probably the, the place to go if you want to speculate. Now, if they don't clearly communicate their criteria or they communicate it but don't follow it, those are both, you should assume in that scenario that they're, they're in the latter camp. Unfortunately, the vast majority of exchanges are in that latter camp. Hmm. What we found is we, we came up with uh, um, criteria which are just... Very sensible, um, we thought. One, um, we, we would only list items which were technically mature because if you're asking people to own money with something which is not technically mature, there's a high risk it could explode and that's not good for your customer. It can make a lot of money for you, but it's not good for the customer. Two, we would list something which had very good community support because if it didn't, it could fluctuate a lot, it could disappear. In, money has network effects, so you need to have strong community support. So again, it seems a very sensible criteria. Small cap tokens and so on didn't make sense there. Three, there needed to be regulatory clarity because we're a regulated exchange. You need to have regulatory, regulatory clarity around the token. And four, ultimately, you want these things to be store of value. 
uh, money. So it needs to, to be have a, a core use case, which was around storing value and money. Because if it wasn't, then it wasn't a thing to store your value in. And if you're thinking of customers you want to save, that didn't make sense. Now, when you take those four criteria, and we thought they were four very sensible criteria for if you're focusing on customers trying to save and dollar cost average or sensibly invest and hold for the long run. We only found one currency that actually fit those four criteria, which was Bitcoin. So when I say that I'm a Bitcoin maximist, I just think it's actually from a very rational position. If I found something else that fit those four criteria, I would have listed it, but I've never found anything that came close to those four, which is why, and Bitcoin only just meets those four, by the way. You know, even Bitcoin only just meets those four. Otherwise, if it didn't, then we would just shut up shop and say, well, there's nothing to offer people. But Bitcoin does meet the criteria. And, and we were reviewing it every month, and it was only Bitcoin. And, mm. and in fact, with further decisions by other cryptocurrencies, they've further and further gone away from being able to fit those criteria. So, for example, Ethereum, you might think it fits three of those criteria, but in terms of technical readiness, the Ethereum developers decided and announced publicly um, that Ethereum 2 was coming out because Ethereum was never going to meet the original objectives of Ethereum of community for, of, of the Ethereum developers. So if the developers of Ethereum say it's not good enough, objectively, it's not good enough at that stage. So at that point, it was very obvious that we had to list Ethereum after only listing it for six months. It was only a short period. And so we delisted it at that point because... The developers of Ethereum themselves are telling you it's not good enough. Yeah, you don't want to argue with them. <laughs> they need them. So, uh, Obi, you are a board member on B Trust. This is a nonprofit. Yeah. Talk to us about what, what this is about. B Trust, and it's B is the Bitcoin B in um, B Trust. It's always difficult to type um, to, to find that symbol. We need to make it as a, a permanent character on the keyboard. Um, so it was, a, it was originally um, a year, over a year ago, Jack Dorsey and Jay-Z tweeted this idea that they're putting 500 Bitcoin towards a trust um, to promote the development of Bitcoin protocol engineers in the global south, starting in um, Africa and India, but ultimately all across the global south. And so they were on the lookout for board members, three to four board members, to take this 500 Bitcoin, form this trust, and locate, educate, and remunerate talented Bitcoin engineers so that they could become, hopefully become the next generation of Bitcoin protocol engineers. Because there are only a few people who actively work on some of these vital, globally vital technologies. So... Lightning, Bitcoin Core, and other um, pro, um, core protocols. Um, so the idea is great. The impact is also great because if you take Bitcoin Core, it's, it's talking to the two main core, um, Bitcoin Core maintainers um, in Oslo a, a month and a half ago. And they're saying, actually, right now, although there's a few hundred people who contribute, the people who actively contribute to Bitcoin Core, for example, it's about 10 right now. And you can see Peter Willer. Um, just announced stepping down, so it could be even less. So even if you add one or two or three people to that, you're making a significant increase in, and this is a point where the Global South is not only you're helping increase the education of the Global South, but 
they're going to then contribute to something that is of global importance. So the global south is supporting the world as opposed to the West supporting the global south. So love the idea. I applied with 7,000 plus other people because it was an open invitation. I didn't want to have these things where it was back rooms, you know, old, old boys club type um, application. And I know many people from, from the Bitcoin space applied, but many people from outside it applied as well. And so began a 10-month process. This also began in the same year that um, I was already looking to um, move on from CoinFlow. And there's a reason why, but that was all because I started to realize that we needed to get a lot of people off exchanges, but that's something we'll talk about in a bit. So over that 10 months, while I was still working on CoinFlow, but looking at, starting to look at offers before I just ignore them, but starting to look seriously at offers to acquire the company. We went from 7,000 people, I applied. And then a few months later, I went to the next round, the next round. And at some point around just before adopting Bitcoin in, in San Salvador, which I was planning to go to, because at that point it was getting close to us finding buyers. We were in the last negotiation phase. And I had finally opportunity to do things like to go to Hackers Congress for the first time in Prague. As a CEO of a regulated exchange, it's not a good look to go to Hackers Congress, but now I know I'm selling it, I can finally do that. And to go to San Salvador, I got down to the last like few hundred, I believe. And then I thought, okay, then maybe there's a chance here. And yeah, we kept on going through and then we got to final interviews. And just a few days before I was about to sell the business, it was pure coincidence, um, we it was finally announced that I was going to be one of the four board members. We had our board meeting with Jack and Jay on the call and all these other incredible people um, who'd helped and given, donated their time from Spiral, from uh, Chaincode, from Brink, from just everywhere. And um, yeah, we, the four board members met each other for the first time on that call as well. We introduced ourselves to everybody. And so it began. I mean, it was formally announced on the same day as I stepped down as, as a director of CoinFlow, just by pure coincidence, the same day. I, mean, I don't even think my other board members know that happened. Um, so one life ended and a new life began. Insane. And, uh, insane. Everybody yeah, listening insane. to this right now is, is doing a <laughs> fist pump in the air like that is awesome. <laughs> that is uh, so I cool. Mean, I'm pretty blessed. The people I'm working with are incredible, yeah. amazing. Wow. Um, so you had you had mentioned Lightning and Core, obviously. So do you see uh, Fediment in in that mix of protocols potentially moving forward? How does the board view uh, Fediment? Is it something that's been brought up? Yeah, I mean, we we have a number of principles that we put on our site, and one is I, I, I'm very careful not to bring up Fediment in in uh, B Trust meetings. Other people have, mm-hmm. and. Um, sometimes candidates that we talk to have brought it up, mm. which is really good because there's so much just natural excitement for it. So yeah. that's actually, um, but what I don't want to do is be seen to be promoting of something course. that I, I'm working on. And that's one of the, one of our uh, policies as board members to not try to promote our own bags, as it were, um, even though this is an open source project, but I do fundamentally see this as the third key pillar of the Bitcoin open source ecosystem. What are the first protocol. two? What are the first two, so, Bobby? The first one, the central pillar 
is Bitcoin core itself, Bitcoin. So this is decentralized censorship resistance store of value of money. And that's the base that everything else is built across. Um, fixed supply, you know, immutable, decentralized, and also very, very secure. You know, in terms of extra function, the sacrifice it makes is it's, it's not got very much functionality and so on. And that's where other technologies can add to it over time. But it needs to be as a base, very, very, very secure and very, very decentralized. And what you don't want to have is compromise those two for bells and whistles in the core protocol. You know, because if you're compromising on centralization, then what's the point of using a blockchain? It's a massive overhead. You might as well use a database. If you're compromising on security, then you end up with something like terror, you know, and so on. Why, why would you store money on something that's insecure? It's eventually going to be lost. It makes no sense either. So you cannot compromise on those two. The next pillar is decentralized censorship-resistant payments. And that has been provided through Lightning. And that allows you to, if, if you're set up correctly and the network is architected correctly from a scaling and congestion point of view, allows you to settle between parties for at the speed of Lightning and at incredibly low cost. So that allows you to scale the payments aspect, but it's built on top of, of the first layer. And then the third pillar, which is missing, is decentralized censorship-resistant custody. And at the moment, if you think about it, we've really got two choices. You come along and you're someone who's passionate about Bitcoin, knowledge about Bitcoin. It's invariably friends and family when they're in the when it's the right phase in the bear period, no one wants to talk to you and you're the social pariah. But in the bull period, everybody comes back and goes, hey, you're the one who always goes on about Bitcoin. Can I actually, can you tell me? Well, they first will ask you for financial advice. They say, where can I buy it from? And whatever you say, because they trust you, you're, they're going to do. But you really have two choices. You can either tell, you, 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 take a, you take a view. Are these people technically proficient enough? then maybe you suggest to go with a hardware wallet approach. But for nine times out of 10, you don't think they are, especially early on. So then your only choice is to tell them to go to a regulated exchange, even though you know that's not a good thing to do. That's literally the only thing. And that's not centralized. And you're basically telling them to store their money with a stranger, effectively. It's stranger custody, by definition, third-party custody. What we need is a solution which is much simpler to use, and also can be rolled out anywhere. It's decentralized, it's censorship resistant, which is not the case for a regulated exchange. And it allows you to custody safely and securely. And ideally, just like Lightning bakes in privacy into the standard, because everybody needs it, but they don't actively do stuff for it, the, your custody solution should also do that. You shouldn't have to go off and do extra things to get privacy. It should be just baked in and you shouldn't even think about it. So that is missing, and Fedimint provides that. I can go into how I discovered it um, and discovered the person who invented yeah. it. Yeah, I, I have that um, as a question here. I want to. I wanted to hear how because you don't know this person, correct? Oh well, now well, no, I now I do know him. Okay, or okay. Her. <laughs> but um, but at the time I didn't. Yeah. Um, as I mentioned last year, um, in the sort of the final uh, few months of um, negotiating sale of CoinFloor, 
I decided to visit Hackers Congress and I was going there for, for two reasons. One, I've always wanted to go, but I just felt as the CEO of a regulated exchange, it, it, it wasn't appropriate for me to, to go to certain events at the time. But this time I thought, well, you know, now I can go, you know, it, it doesn't matter. And I've always wanted to go. But there was another reason. In 2019, it seems that there's a segue that's related. The Financial Action Task Force, FATF, approved something called the travel rule. Um, at that time, people who were in the industry, um, especially who were very au fait of what was happening in regulation, realized how significant this was going to be. The FATF is this unelected body who advises people, um, regulators around the world on appropriate regulation. But that's just advice. But uh, throughout the history of FATF, there's no piece of advice they've ever given that hasn't been unanimously um, implemented by the different countries who have signed up to the FATF um, policies. But every, almost every country in the world has signed up to the FATF policies. Even if they're warring with each other or so on, they've all signed up. Now, the only question is how long it takes to implement. The quickest, smallest, agile countries do it in about three years. The, the less agile will take five, six years. But they all do it eventually. So 2019 was when the clock started. And as you can imagine, we're in 2022. We're now at the period where you're starting to see the countries implement it. And many people think, well, this is not going to be implemented. But there is not a situation of a policy implemented by FADF that hasn't been implemented. So knowing this, I realized that as we were getting close to this timeline, that we needed to get more people off exchanges. We as an exchange, and again, as an exchange, you generally not incentivized to do this. But again, an exchange who's concerned about their customers uh, would be one that's constantly trying to get them to self-custody. If they're not trying to do that, or they're trying to explain why it's better to custody with them, again, you need to be careful if your objective is to save. Um, for example, it's a trade and gamble, it's a different thing. So we were constantly trying to get people to self-custody. And after a number of years, I realized that this was just not going to happen. We might get 5% self-custodying, but we're never going to get anywhere near 100%. Uh, one day, uh, one of our customers, an amazing woman, uh, really funny, and now a very good friend of mine, very smart switched on, but not super technical. So, okay, Obi, I get it. I understand what you're saying, and I understand I should self-custody. But the problem is I trust you more than I trust myself. <laughs> I think you have a lot of this, Obi. I think you have a ton of this. You do. You do. Yeah. It's a nip, and I realized that this was what was stopping most people moving across. <laughs> so then I asked her and I thought about it. Well, who do you trust more than me as an exchange? And she, went, she thought about it and she went, well, I guess my friends and family, because they're the ones I asked for where to custody. And they suggested you. And they, they could have suggested Wibble Wobble Exchange. I would have just gone with what they've said. So implicitly, I trust them more than you. I'm only using you because they told me to use you. And so that was something I, to use a you know, uh, Sherlock Holmesism, I stored in my mind palace. Just it was up there. And, um, and, but then I just left it. But then um, a number of years later, I was um, at Hackers Congress thinking about ways in which we could help get people off exchanges. I also had a very strong interest in the global South, especially 
even more so, it's always been running through my experience at CoinFlow, but it's just never going to happen. A UK regulated exchange with UK and European-based um, traditional finance-based investors, they were never going to have Nigeria as the second market. It was just not going to happen. But I'd always wanted to do this. And I also realized that self-custody and the hardware wallet solutions don't work in places where if you send 100,000 or 10,000 hardware wallets to Nigeria, you're lucky if 1% get through and don't get stolen on the mm, way in mm. deliveries or in certain regimes, are they going to be sabotaged or all this sort of stuff? It just doesn't, it works in a Western context, but it doesn't work there. Um, so I, I was thinking about ideas like using existing things that were already there, like Nokia phones, they're everywhere. They're used as doorstops in most places now, but they have the functionality and power to be hardware wallets, for example, and they pre-existed the invention of Bitcoin. So it's hard to think that um, chips could have been added to something before the, the, the threat was actually in existence. So I was looking to talk, I was talking to some of the um, hackers and cypherpunks there about how we could redeploy them. And then at one lunch break, we were outside the front of Paranili Police, if I pronounced it correctly, in, where Hackers Congress takes place. And I bumped into um, El Syrian, Eric Syrian. And he was wearing his, you know, cap and sunglasses and, and face mask and so on and so forth because he is very privacy focused. And I told him about my ideas and he gave me very, very honest feedback. I thought these ideas were terrible and I really appreciate it because I, I liked to be to get good feedback on these things. And then I wanted to hear about his ideas. And he then told me about... Um, Feddy Mint, which is a portmanteau of federated Chaomian mints. And um, this is the idea, and I thought, this is a really interesting idea, but isn't it going to be stopped by regulators and so on and so forth? Because, you know, I've had eight years of background dealing with regulators, dealing with some of the largest law firms in the world, regulatory advisors, and so on. And so I had a very strong knowledge of all the different regulations that are happening in different places. And, and he, he said, well, I don't really think about that. I'm just making this incredible privacy technology, which it was. But then I thought about it for a bit and I realized, wait a minute, if these people who are, and I can explain how it works in a bit, but if the people who are running these, these nodes effectively, these Fedimint nodes, for, um, we now call them guardians. Um, if these people are friends and family or, or, or they have some sort of pre-existing um, a non-commercial relationship. And if they are not looking to do this by way of business, um, they're, they're basically not earning money. I mean, they can earn money if they want, but if they, if, and, and certain jurisdictions are fine with that. And if the way federations work, it means that they don't have a majority of keys, they have a minority of keys, they can't act single-handedly, then through various exemptions, they would be exempt from, depending on the jurisdiction, they'll be exempt from regulation in most reasonable jurisdictions. By that, I mean West of Europe, um, UK, and US, for example. They would be exempt from regulation. As, long as, they're, as long as they're not so, doing it for profit, you're saying? There's, there's multiple things that uh, the system does, and the design is designed to make it so that the people operating it have a strong case to be exempt from regulation. Okay. So one is, um, and this is very clear, you can see it on the, the website of, uh, very helpful websites of the FCA, for example, is um, this guide, do you need to be regulated or not? And one clear exemption is, are you doing this by way of business? 
And then he goes, well, how do you know it's doing by way of business? Well, there's, you know, there's no hard and fast rules and they never give hard and fast rules, but examples, are you looking to make a profit from it? Yeah. And to make revenue? Well, so if you say I'm not, and also if you add on things like, well, if you add on that you're doing it for people you have pre-existing relationships with and they're not, and it's clearly, it's like it's friends and family, that's also just adds to the argument that you're not doing it by way of business. If you can think of the idea, if I'm going to store money in a piggy bank for my, my kid, I'm not a, I don't need to regulate it as a licensed custodian. If I go to the shop and buy stuff for a friend, I don't need to regulate it as a payment institute. They, I mean, they give me money to buy stuff for them. Or if I buy something in, in a restaurant and uh, I said, I'll pay you, you can pay me like next week. I don't need to be a credit institute to do that because I'm doing it not by way of business. You know? um, and it's the same. If you are holding your private keys for, if someone has got a hardware wallet and then they, give, they ask you to hold a backup of their private keys, that, those, that backup is, is also the wallet. But we realize that that's not regulated because you're not doing it by way of business, but you are literally custodying their, their money as well by holding that backup of their private keys. And most people will be storing the back of their private keys with friends or hopefully, or they might be storing it in a bank vault, but in which case you're still storing your money in a regulated third party bank in that case, in which case why use the hardware wallet if you're going to store your backup in a, in a, a third party regulated um, institution. Um, so, you know, all of these things, you don't expect those to be regulated. And it's the same thing here. It's effectively, Fedimint is is the same as you storing the keys for as a backup for your friends, but just on steroids. And we're taking the best practice way of doing that, i.e. you should be storing them as cryptographically um, secure shares and then splitting it up amongst a number of trusted friends. That's what you get automatically when you, when you um, join a Fediment Federation. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. If you're looking for the right franchise concept at the right time, an iFlex Stretch Studio franchise is the business for you. iFlex is the newest franchise concept from the founders of the Joint Chiropractic. With over 200 licenses already awarded to our regional developers, there's never been a better time to own an iFlex franchise in your market. An iFlex Stretch Studio franchise offers its clients the best in professional-assisted stretching for one affordable price in one beautiful location. Even the Mayo Clinic says stretching can increase flexibility and improve your joints range of motion helping you move more freely prime regional developer opportunities and franchise locations are going fast don't miss this opportunity to get into this rapidly growing health and wellness business from the founders of the joint chiropractic find out more today call 888-994-3539 or visit iflexpodcast.com call right now 888-994-3539 or visit iflexpodcast.com Kyle, you're connected with a ton of different investors and portfolio managers, and you're just really in the know on a lot of these things. How do you keep up with all the day-to-day headlines for your portfolio companies? Yeah, so I used to have a ton of issues with this, and that was until I started using Yahoo Finance. Really? What's so great about it? So Yahoo Finance is awesome. I have my whole portfolio entered, and I can easily see all the top headlines to keep up with the recent news. And each day, you get an overview of the major global events that might be moving the market. So I'm ready to easily pounce on any opportunities that come my way. What else can you do on Yahoo Finance's platform? 
They also have a number of cool features, including a tool that lets you link all of your investment accounts, analyst ratings, and independent research, as well as the ability to create customized charts. Well, now I know that the audience is really going to love this one. And I actually see they have 90 million monthly active users. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com. The number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. As many of you know, I love studying businesses and networking with business owners. The more I've studied businesses, the more I've realized that starting and scaling your business is easier than ever because of companies like Shopify. Did you know that Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S.? Shopify is the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business, from their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Shopify even helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout, up to 36% better compared to other leading commerce platforms. What I personally love about Shopify is that it's the turnkey solution to kickstart and grow your business, and they are totally committed to giving you the necessary tools to succeed as a business owner. Plus, they have an award-winning customer support team there to help you every step of the way. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash WSB. That's all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash WSB now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. That's shopify.com slash WSB. All right, back to the show. Talk to us through... Uh, like explain a, an example, let's say that you, me and four other friends. So there's six of us. Is that kind of a federation size that you see this playing out in application and then walk us through what that application would look like? So that's all a matter of experimentation. And it's also very flexible. It's a technology, it's a protocol, and we're going to see a lot of experimentation. If I talk to 30 people, I get 30 different topologies of how it could be set up, which is a great because that tells you that this is a really flexible tool. But let's just take one example. Um, and I, just to, but before I do that, go back to the last point. When I realized that, that was the case and that, that it was possible to be exempt from regulation, but the experience, and then I realized that this was far more than just a privacy technology. This was a decentralized custody offering. You could have the user experience of an exchange, but better. You can have um, privacy levels, which are better than both an exchange and a hardware wallet. You could have access to the Lightning Network as, as in natively. And you could also have a level of custody security, which was very strong, you know, approaching that of a hardware wallet. But it was still a software solution, which could be delivered anywhere in the world for free. This was decentralized censorship-resistant custody. And... Um, so that's why I became really excited and I wanted to do everything to support it after that point. But let's go back to your question about uh, a given example. Um, let's say you, um, you and some other friends of yours are Bitcoiners through and through and you run your own full nodes. 
And you're always going to get friends who want uh, and family who want you to become like their uncle Jim to support that. I think that's the phrase um, I, to support them and help them provide them advice, maybe help buy Bitcoin on behalf, maybe hold some for them, etc. But you're then taking a lot of risk on in that if uh, and if something were to happen to you, you lose your own Bitcoin. But now something happens to you, you lose yours and their Bitcoin, which is an extra stress. You could then say, and also your Bitcoin, you want to work out how am I going to hold my 24-word backup seed securely? And again, if you go to sites like 10x Bitcoin security, Glacier protocol, all these things, the recommendation would be multi-signature custody. And then where do you store those different multi-signature keys? We've trusted friends and family. So what you'll do is you, you take your Bitcoin nodes, you, you install the Fediment um, software as well. They need a full Bitcoin node running, but the Fediment services only adds a very little additional overhead to that. And then with a little bit of configuration, just like you have to configure your Lightning node or Bitcoin node, a little bit of configuration, mainly just putting the IP addresses of the other Federation members, the system will form a Federation. They will connect to each other um, they will form a multi-sig wallet and, and that's it. And then just like Bitcoin um, and to a lesser extent Lightning, but just very much like Bitcoin, once you do that, you can just make the idea is you just keep it running other than the odd bit of maintenance running out of hard drive space or something like that. You, could, you just have to keep it fed and watered with electricity and, and internet and that's it. It will just, so- just run. So let's say the six participants in this network, six, yeah. let's just yeah. say we have six and each one of us has Bitcoin on an exchange, all six of us. And now we're going to deposit it into our own local addresses inside of that federated network that we just established. So we all have our own private keys or, or walk us through what something like that would look like. So I- each it's a multi-signature address so each person has their own private key but then they use their private keys to form a multi-signature address which Mm. requires a subset of the keys to sign a transaction so three of six if we decided that or four of six let's say five people and it's three or five or if it was six you'd probably want to go again you could do whatever you want but I'd, I'd probably suggest you to go for four or six. So you need a major, you need an absolute majority, majority yeah. of the transaction. But let's just say if you wanted to go with six you, and you choose to have a four of six multi-sig. So each person would take their own private key that they manage themselves, but then they would put in the IP addresses of the other federation members. It will form, it will create a multi-signature address, which requires four of those six keys to sign. And if you lose any two of those six keys, you can still keep ticking along and still keep signing. So it provides a, a bus factor of three. So it needs at least three people before it stops um, being in the sign. And you have a, and you need at least a majority of four people to sign as well. So no one person, and in that case, no two people can cause the system to stop. And also it will keep going. And also the, the vice versa. So that forms this multi-signature address. Now, at that point, to send money to any one of the OU, you would send it to the same multi-signature address. But when a deposit comes in, there will be additional information that will be passed along that will allow you to know 
which address that's related to. So for example, if it was on chain, you'd create an address and the federation, the Fedimin Federation, will know that this address, just like when you use an exchange, an address is created and it's associated with a user, that address will temporarily be associated with a user as well. And so when the deposit comes in, Federation knows that that's allocated to a given user. Now, um, here's the thing. Unlike an exchange where you have this concept of accounts and user account one, two, three, four, there are no accounts, at least no permanent accounts in a Fediment Federation. A temporary account is set up just to receive the money, but it's not actually attached to a person. Instead, you, what's implemented internally, as well as this multi-signature wallet, is a Chaomian Mint. So a Chaomian Mint were, is a privacy, or Chaomian eCash is a privacy protocol that was invented by David Chow in actually 1983. And it was the, used in his company DigiCash, um, which was one of the first sort of e-money um, systems. Now, this protocol is actually very elegant, relatively simple. It's obviously using very mature maps because it started in, it was invented in 1983. So we're talking about 40 years old now, four decades old. And in theory, it provides for cryptographically perfect privacy. Not near perfect, not Monero near perfect or Zcash, trusted startup perfect, cryptographically perfect privacy. Um, and it's been around for a long time as well, using very mature cryptography. The only problem with it was that it required a centralized bank to receive your cash, whatever that cash would be. This is in. unreal. And, and then if, on the back of that, when it received money in, you would receive in its place these digital tokens, which would effectively be e-cash, what they call e-cash. So you can think of it conceptually like you're going to a fairground with lots of different rides, lots of different things you could do. And you go there with your family and, and your children, etc. You go to the front and there's no money for the rides. You have to buy tokens for everything. So you get to the entrance and there will be a, there will be a cashier or a teller. You give them some cash and then they would give you tokens. Once you receive those tokens, let's say the mother um, um, buys these tokens, she can then give some to her husband, some to her children and they can go off. They can go around, see a friend, pass them to the friend within the confines of this fairground. It's a bear, these are bearer instruments, these tokens. And it's the same with eCash. Each deal you have a, literally a different token for every single individual coin. So, in the same way, you have, if you want to send, give someone five pounds 50, you have to give them a five pound note. I'm just saying pounds because my British background, but um, five dollars 50 cents, for example, or 52 cents. You give them a $5 note and then you will, or let's say $6, you give them a $5 note, a $1 um, note, and then you give them a 50 cents coin and a two cents um, coin. In the same, it will be the same with eCash. You'd have to do the same. You have to create, you'll add them to tokens together to add to the number. So it acts exactly like conceptually how you think cash works. And when people talk about Bitcoin, how they naively think it works, that's exactly, but they find out later it doesn't work that way. E-cash works the way you naively and intuitively think digital cash should work within the confines of this uh, of the of the domain of the federation. So one federation member can send the e-cash tokens directly to another as well. But where the cryptography comes in is it allow it provides this um, ability for um, these tokens to be signed, but in a blinded manner. So basically, a user 
can receive the tokens, blind them locally, send them to the um, to the mint. The mint will then stamp them to say this is valid, and then return it back. And then the user can unblind them, and now they can spend them. But the mint never knew who requested it for it to be blinded. So to, to stretch the metaphor of the fairgrounds, you can imagine it's the same fairground, but instead of this big glass window, you replace it, you brick it up. And all that the, the people in the, in the front can see is this hole where money comes in and they give back tokens or tokens come in and give back money. Not, if, if you add that addition, that's the blinding, then you effectively do not know how many people are in the fairground Who's, who's got what? And also, most of the transactions don't even need to interact with you for long periods of time, only if they want to blind them and, and, and to prevent double spending. But again, you won't know who it is. So when, with this deposit coming in for one of your users, you would have some sort of shared secret which the person who's receiving the money would have known, and they will therefore add that shared secret to this address. And then when the money comes in, that once it arrives, you, they can then um, provide you some information to, let, to prove that they're the ones who are the right recipients for that money that came in, and therefore you release it to them and you issue tokens to them. But that way, you can issue tokens to someone when based off a deposit coming in without knowing who you're issuing tokens for. So the Charming Mint system allows you to hold money on behalf of someone without knowing who you're holding it for allows you to um, receive, the, receive deposits for someone and pass it on to them without knowing who it is that you're passing it on for. And also, the, the opposite can happen. Someone can send back tokens to you, which you then destroy, because you mint the tokens and you destroy them. And you can then send off um, Bitcoin on-chain or over the Lightning Network without knowing who made that request. So it provides, it's very simple, it provides cryptocurrency perfect privacy. What was the additional innovation? And someone actually theorized this in 2002, actually, someone recently showed a paper, that someone thought Charmian Mints, uh, lots of people have looked at them again and again. Someone thought that Charmian Mints would be great, but maybe as a way for us to decentralize the bank. But they didn't think about how to do it, but it was proposed. And then a year and a half, two years ago, Eric Syrian uh, looked at the idea of, that was popular, popularized by Blockstream of federations with Liquid, where you're taking this one address and you're federating amongst multiple people and thought, well, instead of having this sort of global scale federation, why don't we apply this technology to Charmian Mint and we federate the bank so that it's not just one person, but a number of people work together to provide the service of this Charmian Mint. And that was the, where the idea of, so removing its main, one of its main weaknesses, which was the fact that it was one centralized actor. And it's, and it's solved that by federating a centralized actor. And federated charmements were, were born. And then where I came in, I realized how you could have a use case where it could be exempt from regulation, which would, and if you look at a modern exchange, 80 to 85% of people working there, one way or another, are only there because of regulation. So if you are exempt from regulation, it just simplifies everything. And it makes it global scale. Do, um, do I you think, know, do other so, people yeah. know the size of the transactions? So if there was a substantial transaction inside the Federation, would the other participants know the, the size of that? No, the other, the other participants wouldn't know the size. And the Federation um, guardians, the people who are running the Federation servers, uh, will be very limited in what information they will have about the size. They, they will be aware of the type of coins used, 
if so they might know that you use a combination of five dollar five dollar coins or let's just split in sats point you use some point point one bitcoin coins some number some number of point zero one coins and some number point zero zero one coins but you won't know that's that's the to the extent that they would have awareness but they wouldn't know how much of each you could have used a million of one or one of one they won't uh, if we wanted to and you only had one denomination of coins then you wouldn't even know that but that's where there's the theoretical perfect privacy you would only get perfect if you had one denomination only because then they would just know some number of coins was used and but you lose some information because you do know the denominations but that's still incredible levels of privacy so let's, um, Obi, yeah, yeah. let's say that somebody uh a member of the federation wants to send some of their coins onto an exchange uh call it coin floor and they're doing it let's let's play two different scenarios because my understanding or at least my perception of how this works is you can do this with lightning bitcoin layer two or you can do it with layer one bitcoin setting up these yeah. federations so yeah. let's say that they that they take funds, they deposit it over at an exchange uh, through both of those scenarios. Let's say they do it on layer one and then they do it on layer two. Is the exchange receiving those coins the same way that they are before any of this protocol would potentially ever be yeah, stood from, up? Yeah, from that point of view, it, it appears like a normal Lightning transaction, a normal Bitcoin transaction. This Bitcoin transaction, ultimately, the eCash is only within the domain of the Federation. Of the Federation. Outside the Federation, the, the Federation will destroy the tokens that are being spent and then release um, or to the address that has been instructed to send to a cert, um, an on-chain transaction, for example. Um, if you're sending a Lightning transaction, what will happen is a Lightning service provider would also have um, a connection be connected to the um, the mint and you as a user can connect up to your own line service provider. You don't have to actually interact with the guardians to do this. But what would happen is you would send your eCash tokens to the lining service provider, and they then, in a trustless way, would um, effectively because they effectively emulate the logic of a hash time lock contract, but where one part is eCash as opposed to one part being on chain or on network. And then they would, with their own Bitcoin, within their own channels, send off um, Bitcoin over the Lightning Network to the address sent. But from the recipient's point of view, they receive a Lightning transaction. And so what would happen is their, their channel balance would go down, but their, their um, eCash balance of the LSP would go up. The beauty of that approach is that means the LSP needs to have some trust for the guardians. So they will, have, they will probably be, know the guardians as well or be comfortable with them, be part of the community as well. But the Federation members don't have to have any trust for the, um, for the Lightning service provider. It's only one way. So, and they don't have to also lock up any balance. The Federation doesn't need to lock up any balance on chain or on, on network as well. And because it's not locking up balance, there's nothing to stop um, a, a Federation having connections to multiple different LSPs. So if one balance um, channels were exhausted, for example, you could load balance over to another LSP, for example, immediately and provide a much more reliable payment experience for your users because you're not locking up funds. Um, so, but it's also great for the LSPs because having after a four and a half hour conversation with Rennie Pickard about this, uh, Fedimint represents an ideal counterparty 
um, for an LSP. The, if, if you imagine you had two choices, connecting to 500 intermittent uh, lightning nodes with small amounts of balance and locking up balance amongst all of them to cover potential scenarios for all, all of them. So you have to over-collateralize for these 500s. And they're also up and down irregularly so that you're constantly, your network graph of how to route traffic is constantly changing and having to be recalculated, which is very expensive for you and leads to a, it leads to a much lower reliability of your transactions. Or you connect to one party who represents the volume of 500 people and it also is run by a federation of members who mm. are running it reliably. And as long as a majority of them up are running, it's, it's, it stays up. So its reliability and uptime is much higher. And it also represents much more volume and it's only one connection. So you now need to just put a, lock up an amount of balance, which is based on the average for all of them, as opposed to trying to figure out for every individual user who may never use it for a month and then use it once and you have to lock up. Now you get much more consistent revenue for much lower costs, allowing you to become much more profitable from it. So it's actually, and if it's much more profitable, you incentivize more people setting up Lightnings. So without realizing this, Fedimints, widespread use of Fedimints actually makes the Lightning Network more reliable, more profitable, which again, grows the Lightning Network as well. So when I realized that, I, that was the final straw. All, the, like, all the incentives were aligned. Yeah, all yeah, the incentives. It has to happen. Exactly. Yeah. Unreal. Unreal. <laughs> it's, it, the more you hear about it, the more you realize that this is the missing piece of the Bitcoin open source ecosystem. Um, it provides at rest very good privacy, incredible privacy. It actually, in a community context, we don't even go. We haven't even got into the beauty of how you do social recovery, so that you don't have to worry about the the challenge of what do you do with a twenty four world seed, but or how do you recover it, and ultimately even how do you deal with it in the event of your death and inheritance mm. planning and mm -hmm. so on, all covered. And um, it's 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 it solves that problem, which is an important problem to solve, especially as time goes by, because right now. If you're doing it in a first-party custody context, it's very complex. If you think about, again, if you can do the first-party custody approach, you should have at it. You should do it. But if you want to do it properly, it's complex. You need to get a good hardware wallet. You need to be able to get it to be delivered to you. That costs money as well. So you've got that. You then need to work out what you do, which is the hard bit, what you do with your 24-word seed. Because there's no point having this Fort Knox level security with AI, artificial intelligent, robo-controlled shots in a moat in front of it. Then you go around the back where your 24-word seed is and there's an open door because it's stored you know, with a magnet on your fridge, your 24 words. It sort of defeats the purpose. Uh, I met someone the other day who's a hardcore Bitcoiner, and this is not recommended, but he memorized his uh, um, 24 words seed because he just couldn't think of somewhere else he could be comfortable storing it. And they go, what happens in the case of your death and your family? And you said, well, you know, my, uh, my, my uh, loved ones have a copy of the key. And they go, where do they store it? I don't know where they store it. Well, but that's your security level. Your yeah, keys. That's, right. Your security level. <laughs> that's right. And this is the thing. You have to remember that is a security level. And the more you think about it, then you, what you do is you go online, you check out 10x Bitcoin security, um, Bitcoin security guide and so on. And they will tell you, you are, but the ideal thing you want to do when all is said and done is for most people, 
unless you're willing to go to go to the grave with your keys and contribute to your 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 Bitcoin to the world for inflation, which is something we're willing to do, and I respect that. But if you do want to pass it on to anybody, then you're going to want to make sure it's reliably custodied. Or if you do want to recover in the event that you lose your backup and so on. And the best practice way is to use multi-signature M of N type custody. And then where do you store each one of those? You store them with um, third party, um, with second parties, friends, families, trusted friends, family, reliable people that you've known and they hold it for you. And that's, a, that's a, not by way of business. They're not making profits. They're, they are friends and family, but they are still custodying it in a decentralized manner, your, your Bitcoin. And that's, and then you will want them to be people that you think can be reliably custodying your Bitcoin. That should be the best practice. That's exactly what you get out of the box when you use Fedivant. You get the best practice by doing nothing but just downloading a mobile app and a federation will have an address. You enter the address, or if it's got a QR code, you scan the QR code and you're done. No passports, no driving license, no selfies, but also no figuring out what you do with your 24 word seat. It gets immediately um, cryptographically split in, into shards using Shamir's secret sharing scheme, which is a cryptography secure mechanism to split up a key. And then it gets split and then it gets shared amongst. The guardians, who are by definition your trusted third parties, they're trusted in your community to be, you know, the knights of the community, the, the sort of reliable people who ideally value social capital more than they value financial capital. And there, I mean, you can anybody can custody it, but I, have, if I had a choice of who's going to hold my money, someone who's motivated by money or someone who's motivated by social capital, I know which one I would choose out of those two to hold my money. And yeah, so that's, that's the idea. So Obi, you are, my understanding is you're currently working on an application that simplifies setting up a federation. And I'm, I'm curious how far along you are in that process. And more importantly, who is the audience or who is this intended for? And what solution are you providing through what you're building? Fedimins and the product that we're making is called FedEye based on Fediment, but it's just a nice, simple name. And it reminds me of, or reminds us of Jedi. Um, so these guardians are like Jedi Knights almost. And you got the perfect um, name for that. You I got the perfect name for it, but I look <laughs> more like uh, Mace Windu, uh, who is uh, Samuel L. Jackson's character, to be honest. So I'm probably more of a Mace Windu than Obi-Wan <laughs> um, Justin Moon, who's one of my co-founders, with his mullet is very much like the younger Obi-Wan, actually. Uh, we were discussing this the other day. So he's probably Obi-Wan Kenobi. And so I don't know who El Syria would be. Maybe, uh, maybe he would be uh, Yoda, you know, because he's the one who came up with the idea. We haven't decided who El Syrian is. But um, yeah, so it's called FedEye, and it's a very simple app. But ultimately, this is global scale Bitcoin custody. It's for everybody and anyone who wants to not custody on an exchange, but wants an incredibly simple experience, very secure, lightning first, and also with privacy by default, which is basically everybody, I think, would want something like that. However, what has made me really passionate in the last few months is to see how it can help um, as part of everybody the billions of users who are excluded from the current two options, 
So um, if you are able to meet the cuts to be in a, on a regulated exchange and you're comfortable with the risks and trade-offs, which we've seen quite recently with some of the recent things that even regulated exchanges still can make you lose your money. Or if you have the technical chops and you are, and the money to properly self-custody, that's great. But if you haven't got those two, really you're still talking about billions of users who are, don't meet those two criteria, either through reasons of complexity or through reasons of regulation that regulate them, they're excluded from custodying Bitcoin. And these include some of the most oppressed people in the world. A couple of months ago, I was invited to uh, by Alex Glastin to the Oslo Freedom Forum. And I got to hear some of the most heart-wrenching, but also encouraging stories of bravery against oppression around the world in, and in generally in the global south, but also in Eastern Europe with Ukraine and Russia what's happening there. And all of these people real have, are coming to the realization that a big part of the challenge is money. These regimes are powered by money. They often use inflation, aggressive levels of inflation as the tool to extract money from, from their people, even if the people don't want to give them money. Inflation is a very powerful tax. And if you take examples like Venezuela with 20,000% inflation right now, come down from 50,000% inflation. Even if you're donating or sending money back to your friends and family in that country, what you're effectively doing is donating to the regime, which you may not support, but without realizing you're supporting. So they need a solution, and they exist, but they need a solution that can be deployed anywhere, and it doesn't cost a lot of money. It's not going to be stopped in customs, it's hardware wallets, and they, they can't wait years to be onboarded through a regulatory process, through regulated exchanges, each one going through KYC, and ultimately many of them not even being approved. Fedimint solves that problem, but it needs a very simple user interface for that. So having realized that and having formed really strong relationships with some of these incredible, brave individuals, it's become a passion of ours to not only offer this to the world, but with a specific focus on working with some of these people to roll this out at scale in some of the places that need it the most. And the good thing is, if it works there, it can work anywhere. So it's for everybody, but that's actually um, a key part of why we decided to focus now and build this interface and make it incredibly simple. And we, we will be looking to roll out in these markets, in Africa, in the Middle East, in Eastern Europe, in Latin America over the coming months. So. Obi, are, are people able to go on to like an Umbral? If you're running a full node and you're using the Umbral software, are they able to download uh, Fetty on that? Or is this specifically for a smartphone like an iPhone or an Android device? Uh, walk us through the software. Great question. So remember, there's two things. There's the people who are running the Federation, the Guardians, yeah. or the FedEx almost. And there's the people who are using this app that we're creating, which we're calling FedEye. And that's a mobile app. You download it from Google Store or, and, or Apple Store, and you, are, you have the app. So if you take a, a FediMint uh, federation and the users, let's say it's a village and there's 500 users and there's six people in the federation, the six people in the federation 
only need, or they're the only ones who need to download a Bitcoin full node and a FediMint software. We're looking to implement it on things like um, Noddle, on Raspberry Blitz, on Umbrel, so it's easy to install. If you have, if you can get the whole um, shebang and you get the the set top uh, or the the actual device, you can do that. If you can't get one of those devices delivered to you because of import restrictions or whatever, but you have an, the beauty of Bitcoin is it's highly decentralized. It doesn't need a lot of hardware like others, other um, blockchains. So if you've got an old computer, 15-year-old computer, so on, you, these exist everywhere in the world. You just need to add a hard drive, which is a terabyte in size. You get those for $40, $50 now. And that's enough to run a full node. You can then download the Nodal software or the Umbrel software and use that instead. Um, you also don't need, the people running the federation don't need to be in the same place as the people in, in they need to be the same place from a, from a relationship point of view. They need to have close contact, but they don't need to be physically in the same place. So for example, um, members of the diaspora who are sending regularly large parts of their paychecks back to their, their friends and family um, in, our, um, in the global South are ideal candidates for running Guardians because they are in the West. They're already giving money to these people um, so if they're giving money to them, they're, they're not likely going to want to steal the money that they've just given to the people they're protecting. And they could, for example, buy a Noddle or buy an Umbrella or, or set up a Raspberry Blitz and create a federation amongst themselves for all of their family back home. And the family back home just needs to download a piece of software, scan a QR code, and they're signed up. Knowing Unreal. that these people pulling them up protecting them. Yeah. Unreal. Obi, I know you're active on Twitter. So uh, we'll have a link in the show notes to your, to your Twitter profile. If people have questions coming out of this interview, I'm sure you're going to get a lot of questions. Give us a handoff to websites. I know there's the fediment.org website. Is there any other websites that you want to highlight or timelines for various things that you guys are going to be rolling out? Thank you very much for that. So first of all, if you want to find out about the base protocol that this is this sort of third pillar of the Bitcoin open source ecosystem, go to fedimint.org and that's F-E-D-I-M-I-N-T dot org, fedimint.org. If you want to find out about the new mobile app that we're producing, we've got a site and that's fedi.xyz. So F-E-D-I dot X-Y-Z. It's very simple as that. And then if you want to find out about my, we have um, Fedimint on, on Twitter. If you want to follow Fedimint on Twitter, um, there's a Telegram group called Fedimint as well, which is very active and it's got, it, and that's really interesting conversations. And then finally, if you want to hear my, my musings on Twitter, my occasional musings, you can find me at Obi on Twitter. So just OBI, because I was a very early Twitter user. So that's my Twitter handle. That's hard to get, Obi. That's, yeah, hard. It, that's it, really it's hard. Very three-letter um, Twitter handle, yeah. It's very and I bet you, I bet you, Disney would love to to own that uh, handle. By the way, uh, <laughs> we get, I get lots of offers, but uh, I, I'm comfortable keeping keeping it. being the being the one Ob the Ob one. <laughs> so in other way, in, in other words, anyone who's interested, buzz off. <laughs> yeah, I think they've given up many years ago. <laughs> I'll tell you what a pleasure. 
What a pleasure talking with you, sir. Thank you for your time. I learned a ton. I am so excited about what this means moving forward. And I have no doubt that what you're building is going to be a game changer and something revolutionary to add to this revolutionary technology. And can't thank you enough for coming on the show today, Obi. Thank you very much. It's been a pleasure talking to you. I really enjoyed it. I think you have, well, I personally think you have this incredible energy. It's really enjoyable talking to you. You would be the ideal person as a guardian. You know? <laughs> I appreciate <laughs> that. It seems to me, but I would be very comfortable being part of the guardian group that I would be using for, for, for likewise, so, likewise, sir. Likewise. All right. Thank well, you very much. Thank you for your time, Obi. See you later. If you guys enjoyed this conversation, be sure to follow the show on whatever podcast application you use. Just search for We Study Billionaires. The Bitcoin-specific shows come out every Wednesday, and I'd love to have you as a regular listener. If you enjoyed the show or you learned something new or you found it valuable, if you can leave a review, we would really appreciate that. And it's something that helps others find the interview in the search algorithm. So anything you can do to help out with a review, we would just greatly appreciate. And with that, Thanks for listening, and I'll catch you again next week. Thank you for listening to TIP. To access our show notes, courses, or forums, go to theinvestorspodcast.com. This show is for entertainment purposes only. Before making any decisions, consult a professional. This show is copyrighted by the Investors Podcast Network. Written permissions must be granted before syndication or rebroadcasting. broadcasting